Hi, it's Fraser here. Before we get into the latest episode of the Spiked podcast, I'd like to thank everyone who donates to Spiked. Our work would not be possible without your generosity, so we cannot thank you enough. For those of you who like this podcast but haven't yet made a donation, now would be a good time to think about it. Just £5 per month can make the world of difference. £5 is less than the cost of a pint in London. Not that many pubs are open these days. If you'd like to support Spiked with £5 per month, just go to spiked-online.com and hit the donate button in the top right corner. Thank you. And now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers. There's no Tom Slater here today, so I'm instead joined by Spiked editor Brendan O'Neill. Hello. Spiked columnist Ella Whelan is with me as ever. Hi. And we're also joined down the line by special guest Norman Lewis. Hi. Norman is a Spiked contributor and is managing director of Futures Diagnosis. Today, we're going to be focusing on the coronavirus pandemic. We can turn the tide. I said whatever it takes, and I meant it. The number of people who've died from coronavirus in Italy has now overtaken the figure in China. France is just hours away from a nationwide lockdown. All citizens will be required to stay home from midday. We have to fight that invisible enemy. I guess unknown, but we're getting to know it a lot better. The global outbreak of COVID-19 seems to be accelerating day by day as do the measures taken by governments in response. At the time of recording, there are nearly 230,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus worldwide and over 9,000 deaths. Over 86,000 people have recovered. According to the World Health Organization, this week Europe became the centre of the pandemic. Italy, France, Germany, Belgium and other European countries are living under lockdown. Practically all public and social life has been suspended. The UK announced that schools would close at the end of this week, but the government has so far resisted instituting the kinds of measures seen in the rest of Europe. The government has even denied much rumoured plans that London will be locked down, but it does have some draconian plans to arrest people suspected of having the infection. Uh, Norman, speaking generally here, um, what do you think the response has been like? Um, Has it been proportionate or has it gone too far? Uh, well, I, I think the response has been total bonkers, totally bonkers. I, I, it's it's hard to believe that uh, we are witnessing what we are witnessing. I mean, what we're talking about is is a severe health crisis, potentially uh, a severe health, health crisis, which has been transformed into a political, social and economic catastrophe, uh, potentially. Um, I, I don't want to be a caricature and start uh, scaremongering about the economic impacts of all of this, but it is so disproportionate to the real threat that 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 is what I find so extraordinary and how how we are all being drawn into this narrative as if this is you know Armageddon is here that Armageddon is inevitable and I think what's really happened is kind of worst case scenario planning which we would expect governments to do if they are trying to develop a, a risk management strategy um, have been transformed into reality as if they were inevitable and that this is the, the reality of it. And in, 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 in the harsh reality of it is and I'm not going to underestimate the, the severity of, of what the coronavirus is but it, it is a more severe form of flu and we have dealt with flu over many, many decades of, of humanity has learned to do that. 
we could take action that will limit its impact because we know it's particularly affecting particular sections of the population and yet we're treating this as if you know we're all on the verge of 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 annihilation and as a consequence what we've done i think is going to be worse than what the virus could ever have done brendan yeah i really agree with that and i think you know the impact of this pandemic is unprecedented but it's it's not unprecedented because the pandemic is unprecedented it's unprecedented because of what we're doing and that's a really important distinction to make because you know as norman says humankind has dealt with flus and viruses for a very very long time some of them have been far more destructive as so far as we know than the 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 threat we currently face the 1918 flu epidemic killed upwards of 40 million people. Uh, the Hong Kong flu in the late 1960s killed around a million people across the world. Uh, you know, those were incredibly serious pandemics. And we did not see the same response. Mm. We did not see the closure of national uh, life. We did not see the closure of borders. We didn't see the the weaving of those pandemics into an everyday story of Armageddon and threat and danger. So it's unquestionable to me that the way in which we're responding to this is being informed by the pre-existing sense of fear and dread and uh, some of the pre-existing regressive tendencies that were already there in society. And that's what is informing the way in which we're understanding this and informing the way in which we're interpreting the the level of the threat. So we're witnessing something actually far scarier, in my view. I, I also don't want to ratchet up fear from the other angle, but I think we are witnessing something far scarier than an outbreak of virus. We're witnessing an irrational response to what ought to really be treated as a very serious health challenge. Mm. And that irrational response, if you look at the closure of societies across Europe, the closure of borders, the imposition of um, incredibly illiberal policies, and the unbelievably destructive impact this is all going to have on economic life, if you factor all that in, I think it seems pretty certain where we stand right now, given how many deaths and illnesses there have been, and given the likely long-term impact of the measures we're taking, it seems pretty clear to me that our response to the virus is the thing that is going to harm society and human life more in the long term than the virus itself. And of course, you know, just to make clear, because people will caricature um, the position that you and Norman have just laid out as wanting to do nothing. Mm. We're not saying that at all. You, we have to do something, but sometimes you can do too much. Well, that's the thing. It's, you know, there is, of course, such a thing as doing too little. And, and those people who say, sit back, relax, let it run its course are are not right. And we do have to devote resources to um, alleviating the impact as much as possible. But there is absolutely such a thing as doing too much. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's happening now. And the real problem now is the performative nature of what some of the governments across Europe are doing and this in an in an incredibly reactive way they are crumbling falling down like a house of cards in response to this hysterical pressure primarily from the media class who are constantly demanding that more be done who 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 think that in instituting apocalyptic fearful policies and scenarios proves that you are taking the disease seriously that's what they're they're really that's what they're really calling for Mm. and governments are kowtowing to that and that's where the real problem is at the moment ella um your thoughts i think for me the problem has been that there's been a lot of mixed messaging so Mm. initially i remember when we were recording the podcast last week we just watched the press conference 
um, where I think we all agreed Boris Johnson and the CSO and the CMO had outlined some pretty sensible measures in relation to the calls for social distancing, the you know, outlining the seriousness of what was happening, but saying that it was, you know, emphasizing the idea of public spiritedness um, and saying that this was something that individuals would have to take responsibility for and that we were all in this together. And that's quite quickly sort of not U-turned, but skyrocketed into this really quite genuinely frightening. And I don't want to underestimate how frightening it is for some people. Idea that we, you know, that particularly London might be in lockdown. There's a huge amount of rumour swirling around at the moment about the idea that, you know, people sharing stuff about the army coming onto the streets and um, that we're not going to be allowed to leave our houses. And there's no proof that any of that is true yet. And But the reason is you have to keep saying yet because you don't mm. know what the government is going to come out with. And Boris Johnson has said, um, you know, not ruling anything out. Um, all options will be open to us. But I think the difficult thing is uncertainty and we don't know, you know, enough about this virus. Um, I mean, watching Chris Whitty today in a press conference specifically about the science of the virus, he kept saying and emphasising, you know, this is, we are not using settled science, which is basically him being truthful, thankfully, and saying there is no right or wrong answer to this, actually. And that that makes me more sympathetic to the idea that in a, in a short period of time, we might have to accept drastic changes to our lives. The problem comes with weighing up how people deal with this. And the contradiction in the new news of shutting down schools is sort of interesting because there have been calls for a long time for the government to shut down schools. And why aren't they doing enough? And this is obvious, you should be doing this. But actually, people who are talking about things like shutting down schools or making everyone stay at home don't really mean that because they don't mean that off-licenses should shut. Mm-hmm. They don't mean that the cashier at Morrison's should, should stay at home. They don't mean that the bus driver should stay at home. You know, there there are a raft of workers who have previously been called unskilled, um, who have sort of been pushed to the side, not valued, who are now central, integral to the running of society, who are not expected to stay at home. And yet there's kind of a prioritization that teachers shouldn't be in that group of people who are performing a public service. And I think, you you know, while taking this very seriously, there also has to be a balance of society needs to keep running, not just for the preservation of what life will be like after this virus, but also just for the general health and sanity of us all, because the prospect of us being cooped up for the next, you know, it's not weeks, months actually, is unthinkable on an individual and a broader societal level. Yeah, I mean, when, you know, the Dutch Prime Minister was going through the kind of options facing him, he he actually outlined a similar problem and dilemmas, you know, facing the UK government. And their scientists were saying that if they were to institute a lockdown, it wouldn't just be for weeks, it would be for practically a year. And, you know, the problem is that people living in France and Germany, where things are really locked down, where, you know, in Germany, practically all non-essential shops and, and activities have been ordered to close. France is taking this a much, you know, taking a much stricter line where people have to have a document, a signed document and or face arrest if they if they leave the house. 
nobody knows how long that is expected to go on for. Mm-hmm. And ju- well, also just a caveat to that is that obviously I think in the back of most people's heads is the idea of what if this is more serious than we think it is. Mm-hmm. As the days go by, we find out more about this virus. We find out that actually rather than it only solely affecting elderly people and people with underlying health conditions, actually it is negatively, quite dramatically negatively affecting lots of people in the age bracket of like 20 to 44. But the, the point is instead of the government panicking and shutting us all down and stopping life essentially you would rather it announced you know focused all its energy on mass testing mm. on developing a vaccine on doing the test that uh, gets instituted for people who think they have had the virus and are now immune to it and then pumping those people back into the system to keep society running you know brendan talked about the idea of targeting resources and that's the thing that's really key i think something does have to be done and this is a scary situation we kind of you can't just press pause on life for many people norman i mean what do you think are the effects of this pausing of life people have stopped going to the pub people have stopped going to the cinema people are people have stopped going to work obviously there's a vast amount of people who cannot work from home if they're you know builders or electricians what what do you make of what's been happening there well on the one hand you know, I, I have been struck by how commonsensical a lot of people are being. Okay, I think there are some instances of people buying too many toilet rolls. But actually, if you think about the apocalyptic prognostications of where we're going, you know, perhaps um, doing some hoarding is, is quite a rational thing to do, not an irrational thing to do, although I do think there is a slightly unhinged element to that. I think the real difficulty here, and I think Ella kind of touched on this, for, for me the difficulty is that you are dealing with uncertainty. Mm. And, you know, how how long can you, you know, how, how long is a piece of string uh, with regard to that? Because the more there is uncertainty and the more there is this playing up of, you know, the inevitability of uh, the collapse of the NHS, um, all these doomsday scenarios, all that does is that just increases anxiety and, and therefore, it, it's going to have a, a very negative impact socially for large numbers of people. But, you know, what, what I, I find so extraordinary in this, this discussion is that, now, I don't, I don't want to be callous or anything, but flu kills um, globally 650,000 deaths every year. You know, what, what is this suddenly that we've become obsessed with this idea that, you know, anybody who dies from this or, or the, the, the stopping the death rate on this is, is everything has to come to a halt because uh, there, there are going to be deaths. We've had many deaths and in fact, you know, there are other diseases that are similar to this uh, that are far more devastating. Tuberculosis, for example, in 2018, the World Health Organization recorded there were something like 10 million cases across the world, 1.6 million deaths from TB. Mm. India is the epicenter of this, 27% of the world's uh, cases. Um, were flights stopped to India? Uh, were people buying masks? Were production lines shut down because of this? There were 8,000 cases of this in the UK the same year. But there was no reaction to that. There was no, you know, it, it was a health problem. And that, uh, already, we've got to get back to this very simple point, that this is a health crisis. It's been politicized and it's been transformed into an existential uh, social crisis uh, with very severe economic consequences for, for people in their daily lives. And, you know, that's really what we, we, we've got to get back to the whole time. I, I have actually thought that the, the government until now has actually been pretty responsible 
and have been quite different to, to what everybody else has been doing. I think this is perhaps something other people would like to, 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 to talk a little bit about. But I, I have really been struck by how they have attempted in a very serious and mature way to address the uncertainty, to address the fact that, you know, this is science, that there is no uh, simple answer, that, that we are dealing with unknowns and therefore, you know, some policies are going to work, some aren't going to work and we have to have flexibility and the public should be comfortable with the fact that, uh, you know, this is what's going on. You know, we should not be, as the media are pushing us all the time to be, we want simple solutions and answers to all these things because there aren't straightforward answers. It is an uncertain time. And I think that's a very responsible thing from the government. Now, whether they themselves, uh, it seems to me now that they are succumbing to the pressure that's being placed upon them. I think the media have been absolutely irreprehensible in this entire discussion because they have really been reveling and trying to tease out all the worst case things that could possibly go wrong and, and, and they themselves presenting what are scenarios as the reality. And this has just created this swirl of panic, um, which we see so markedly in the behaviours of, of the people we would have assumed to be more responsible in society, the elites, the investors, and they're the ones that are, are running around like headless chickens, panicking, trillions of dollars being lopped off the, the stock market, selling at a rate greater than the Great Depression or a century ago. And that's going to have real impact uh, on, on everybody's lives. You know, I, I don't know if you saw the Times today, there was an article about how the rich in London are hiring big houses outside of London to escape the London lockdown. You know, it's great for the rich, rich to be able to do that. For ordinary people who are going to lose their jobs, mm. who are going to have no income, you know, they are going to really be up against it and it's going to be tough. Brendan. Yeah, I think that point about uncertainty is actually really important because one of the problems, one of the reasons that this health crisis has been transformed into a kind of existential crisis is because modern society, modern Western society is just really bad at dealing with uncertainty. Mm. You know, the tyranny of uncertainty is basically how we view it. And we don't like any risk. We don't like anything that's unknown. We don't like anything that is not instantly measurable. And if there is anything like that, we apply the precautionary principle, better safe than sorry. So let's just stop it, crush it, not do it, not bother exploring that new avenue not b bother inventing that new thing so we have there has been a cult of safety that has emerged over in recent decades which means that when there is uncertainty and there is absolutely uncertainty on this the question of how much it will spread how many deaths it will cause all of that is still very uncertain and our society is does not have the fortitude for dealing with uncertainty right now that is seems to me to be the key problem here earlier human societies did have that. And you can, you know, if you look at earlier flu pandemics, for example, political life was not reoriented around them. It just wasn't. It was a discrete health mission to ensure that as many lives as, as possible were saved. That's how it was treated rather than being folded into this narrative of doom that is just in the press every single day, in the political pol political life every single day. One of the worst things about the COVID-19 thing is how oppressive it is. Mm. It's inescapable. You know, the other day I saw some news reports about Joe Biden and British veterans no longer being taken to court for historic offences during times of war. And I was just punching the air that these were reports not about COVID-19 <laughs> because the whole thing feels like it's colonising your mind. 
And I think that's incredibly unhealthy. But I think the basic point I would make is just that it seems to me pretty clear that we have to distinguish between the, the health challenge posed by this novel new virus and all the things that we will need to uncover about the virus and understand about it and study and and all the new measures we'll need to institute in order to keep people safe. That That's one side. And then the other side, which we've got to disentangle that from, is the pre-existing culture that this virus has emerged into, a culture that is not very good at inculcating people with a sense of resilience, which has told lots of young people that they can live their life in a safe space, which treats death, even amongst old people, as just this this unspeakable thing, this terrible thing. And it, it, is, a, it is a culture that has sanctified safety and sanctified cautiousness. And the fact that this novel new virus has emerged into that kind of environment is the reason it has become this unhinged, dread-ridden, apocalyptic discussion. And I think actually one of the best things we could do towards the end of fixing this disease and limiting its impact is actually to challenge the apocalyptic discussion around it, because that's when we can really start to see the wood uh, away from the trees and start to work out what needs to be done rather than panicking about all the awful things that we think are going to happen. Well, one thing that this uh, doom and gloom narrative has secured is a very real doom for the economy and, you know, the complete drying up of cash flows left, right and centre. And, you know, obviously the government has had to announce a kind of unprecedented bailout package worth about 15% of British GDP, £330 billion, not quite as big as the bank bailout during the height of the financial crisis, but no doubt it's going to get bigger because the lockdown or even without an official lockdown, the edict to stay at home, to social distance is just putting so many businesses into freefall. Mm. Ella, did you want to talk a bit about the economic impact? Yeah, well, I mean, the the bailout at the moment, as you pointed out in your article, is a third of that of um, yeah. the financial crisis. So, you know, that's one thing, and you can have an argument about that. But the you know, lots of people were praising Rishi Sunak when he announced this, and he said some very inspiring things. He said, I want to reassure every British citizen that this government will give you all the tools you need to get through this, and whatever it takes, I mean it, and taking a very strong lead. But in actual fact, while you might commend his provisions for small businesses to a certain extent, um, what was lacking, and you pointed this out in your column Fraser is the you know very real questions of simply what do you do if you're an individual who's self-employed who mm. has to self-isolate what do you do what website do you go to who do you ring how do you get paid yeah and at the moment the government is about to announce or it's going to be discussing next week and nodding through this emergency powers bill coronavirus bills it's been called which has a number of measures perhaps we can talk about some of them afterwards but uh, a particular one is essentially reducing the waiting time for statutory sick pay so that instead of having to wait for three days or whatever it is, you get it almost instantly after day one. But <laughs> statutory sick pay is £94.25 a week, <laughs> a week. Yeah, it's laughable. And it is, it's not even 20% of the average pay for a person in the UK uh, before tax, which is 489 quid a week. And of course, you take into account, you know, London is potentially going to be the place that's going to be locked down if that does happen first or people's lives will be affected most. And think about the average rent in London is a grand and a half at least. So, you know, £94 a week is peanuts. It's nothing. And I don't agree with him politically on 
anything really. But Keir Starmer, Labour leadership hopeful, actually came out with something sensible this week where he was suggesting this kind of Danish style program, which would, one of the points includes trebling statutory sick pay. Mm. And, you know, there's lots of sort of free marketeers and conservatives online clutching their pearls at the idea of more government spending. But that just to me is the most sensible thing I've ever heard. Make sure people can meet their rent and make sure people can eat because you really can't survive for a long period of time on on 94 quid. And it's important to note that actually statutory sick pay by law only extends to 28 weeks. But the suggestion is that we're going to be in this scenario of not working for a significantly longer time than 28 weeks. So, you know, the government has to come out and make those kind of announcements that will actually put at ease the single parent, the self-employed plumber, you know, all these people who make society run. Yeah, I mean, I'm one of the things about, you know, any major crisis like this is you you discover what's important, you know, it focuses the mind. So not only as you were suggesting, Ella, you, you suddenly realise that you know, shelf stackers and various kind of cleaners and things like that suddenly take on a new importance, even though they're the lowest paid people. You know, the importance of sick pay suddenly is really, you know, in in, in focus. And the complete unimportance of, you know, boring wrangling about the budget deficit suddenly gets exposed, as does the unimportance of the panics around climate change or the kind of identitarian grievances that we have a lot of fun talking about on this podcast. I mean, Brendan, did you want to come in? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I think it's important to, even when we're talking about the economic measures that are ne- necessary to deal with this crisis, I think even there, it's important to bring those into the broader discussion about what's going on. So on spite, as Fraser, you outlined this week, we're, we're very supportive of generous measures to assist people in a way that will not just let them survive on bread and water, but will mean that their lives can continue in a in a civilized way for however long this takes. And I think Rishi Sunak actually made a good start on that. And one of the, he needs to go much further, as, as you said, Fraser, in your piece, but one of the great ironies of the current political moment is that you have a conservative government leading the charge in a huge amount of public spending designed mm. to assist working families, while on the sidelines you have the Labour Party who have been completely and utterly rejected by the working classes because of their contemptuous anti-democratic politics. So there's an interesting political moment occurring. But the point I would make in relation to that is even as we say, listen, you've got to step up and bail out the people and and fund people's lives during this crisis, we have to understand why people are in this position and they're not necessarily in this position because of coronavirus. Mm. They're partly, I would say, mainly in this position because of how the authorities have responded to coronavirus, which is why when I hear Labour Party politicians and, you know, the kind of woke elites and the liberal commentariat and others, when I hear them now saying, oh, we must have a rent holiday and a mortgage holiday and we have to give people better statutory pay. On the one hand, I completely agree. Let's get that money out there. On the other hand, I want to say to them, it's your culture of apocalypticism. It's your kind of luxurious middle class obsession with the end of the world, which has existed for a very long time in relation to climate change and no deal Brexit and now coronavirus, which is forcing in some ways or, or at least pressuring the government to take measure after measure after measure, which is destroying people's daily lives. And that's a really important point to make. So I think we do have to have a dual approach to this, which says, listen, Get that money out there to troubleshoot these issues, Mm -hmm. but then let's look at what's causing these issues. It's not a novel virus that came from Wuhan. 
It's the incapacity of our governing classes to understand that that's part of life and that they shouldn't shut down the economy and society in response to it. So I think it's really important to make that point so that we keep the broader picture, even at the same time as we're saying no family should go short in the coming period. It feels slightly odd and perhaps even distasteful to talk about broader political trends. And you certainly don't want to be kind of pointing the finger at this period because people just need to come together, listen to the advice and get through this. But something that Brendan just said did made me think something I've been thinking about for a while that when this is all over and uh, hopefully it will be over, not in months and years, but in you know weeks and months, there will be a lot of questions to be asked. And the main one is why there are, you know, particularly for a conservative government, why there are so many uh, individuals and families in this country living um, week to week. And, yeah. and part of what this has done is revealed the fallacy of the, the kind of low unemployment rate and how, why actually that was just a mask to cover the fact that lots of people are in precarious situations. But also the more important thing, which is Brendan talked about the kind of the the general sense of how people are feeling and the the kind of politics of apocalypticism, but there's also I think been a sort of an, a nasty vibe to a lot of this, which is um, a real uh, underestimation of people and yeah. low expectations of how people will deal with this. I mean, even just anecdotally. I'm now part of several WhatsApp groups of people in my area who are, you know, I'm in Hackney, so they're mainly talking about how to make each other sustainable vegan meals or whatever. But, <laughs> but pe- the people have come up with a general sense of trying to help each other. And yeah. um, my piece for Spiked this week looked at how, you know, some of the, the good stories, which is mm. things like a gin distillery in Bristol producing hand sanitizer as well as brew dog, you know even corporate stuff, Pret giving free sandwiches to NHS staff, this group of friends who delivered a pint to their mate who was self-isolating on St. Patrick's Day. Uh, I think that actually, you know, and Norman said this as well. Yes, there are people panic buying toilet rolls. Yes, there are people behaving stupidly in supermarkets and rowing with each other. And there's a general sense of panic, which I think you can kind of understand given the situation. But actually, the general trend is that I think people are, are hopefully going to club together on this. And I think there is a genuine sense of solidarity. I mean, there's been a huge outpouring of support for people who are working on the front line from NHS staff to cashiers, actually. And we could do with a bit more good news, actually, and a bit more celebration of the solidarity of people to be able to come together to beat this, rather than the general sense, you know, nudge theory that's going on in the government that says, basically, we're all kind of awful and selfish, and we have to be nudged and enforced into doing the right thing. I think we should have more trust in people themselves to do the right thing. Norman, I'm going to give you the last word on this. What do you want to add? It's remarkable to me how the difference between the way the UK has gone about this and the rest of Europe and all these other countries has been marked. Mm. And the thing that's marked for me has been the fact that, you know, you've got a prime minister who has come out in, in publicly, stated things as they should be stated, has got his experts right there in front of the world and is engaging the demos in a, in a very mature discussion initially. I think it's beginning to change. And as we said that earlier, that, you know, the, the pressure is beginning to tell. And therefore, I think the whole idea of, of the question of the experts and their relationship to all of this is changing. And it's going to change as a consequence of this, because what I think is so interesting about that you've got these two experts and, and Johnson's out in the public stage, you realize that Boris Johnson is aware of the fact that he's not just talking to the media. 
He's talking to the demos. He mm. knows that the demos are now looking at him because unlike every other country in the world, we've just had Brexit. We've just had an election that they've been voted in on. So consciously aware of the fact that you know he has a relationship to the electorate and that they can remove him if, if they want to, but that he is accountable. And the accountability of the experts in this instance is so interesting because the thing that's really struck me is why in this discussion do we just assume that the government should own the expert? Mm. Why is it that we the, the, the expert is somehow associated with government? I think the real problem here is that government have abused expertise. They have politicized it in the past and they have it has been part of a kind of nudge um, a, a phenomenon. But now we're seeing this now come out into the open where people are saying, well, actually, you know, the experts are accountable to us because they have got to solve this problem for us, not just for the government. This is, this is a problem that's facing humanity. And the experts now have got to be accountable to us as, as society, as the masses. And that's very, very new. And that's very, very refreshing because it's going to re reorient the entire relationship between the future of expertise, government, politics and democracy. And, and uh, that, that to me is, is an unexpected side to all of this, but it's a very important one. You've been listening to the Spiked Podcast. For more Spiked content, don't forget to keep visiting us at spiked-online.com, where you can also make a donation or treat yourself to something from our shop.